Jeremiah in Jeremiah 14:17, you will say this word to them, let my eyes flow down with tears night and day, and let them not cease, for the virgin daughter of my people has been crushed with a mighty blow, with a sorely infected wound. Jeremiah is a powerful book. He was a mighty prophet. This book is filled with rebukes, appeals for repentance, declarations of future judgment on Judah and other nations, but also promises of future restoration. We're only going to scratch the surface of this lengthy book today, but we'll sample various, or we'll look at various passages, and from these passages, we're going to notice four different things. That's going to be the outline for our class today. God's indictment of Judah's sin, God's appeal for true repentance among the people of Judah, God's warning of severe judgment, and God's promise to restore and change both Israel and Judah one day in the future. Let's pray. Our God, this is a mighty word, and we thank you for sending Jeremiah the prophet as a witness to your people and as a witness to us of your righteousness and our evil. God, I pray that you would cause these words to, uh, by your Spirit, work mightily among us today. Help me to be able to explain them well and accurately. And I pray, Lord, that, we'd be, that we would apply them. Lord, that you would cause that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first stop in our survey of Jeremiah will be looking at God's indictment of Judah's sin. And the passage I I want us to turn to is Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, verses 4 to 13. So Jeremiah, right after Isaiah in the Old Testament. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 752. We'll be starting in verse 4. A little bit of background on Jeremiah, though, As uh, before we read this passage. We actually know a lot about Jeremiah because he records a lot of information about himself in his book of prophecy. So we know a number of things. Jeremiah was a priest and also a prophet from a small village near Jerusalem. According to Jeremiah 16, verses 1 to 4, Jeremiah never married and never had any children. But this was actually at God's direction. It was a sign to the people of Judah Just as Jeremiah had no sons or daughters and no spouse, so the people of Judah were going to lose their sons and daughters and their wives because of the coming judgment. Jeremiah was assisted in ministry by a faithful scribe, Baruch. Jeremiah was called as a young man to serve as a prophet, and he served for more than 50 years, serving from the days of Josiah, around 627 B.C., till after Jerusalem's destruction, which took place in 586 or 587 B.C., He prophesies under the last five kings of Judah, Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Jeremiah suffered much hardship in his ministry as a prophet. He was threatened, contradicted, rebuked, put on trial for his life, put put in the stocks, forced to flee from the king's presence, publicly humiliated, thrown into a pit, and even kidnapped. But most painful of all, God told Jeremiah that the people of Judah would not listen to his message. Jeremiah 7, verses 27 to 28. God says to Jeremiah, You shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer you. You shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God or accept correction. Truth has perished, has been cut off from their mouth. So Jeremiah suffered a lot. Nevertheless, God appointed Jeremiah as his witness to Judah promising 
to deliver Jeremiah from all of those who would oppose him. He says, you're going to be opposed. They're not going to listen to you, but I will deliver you from their hand. And Jeremiah was faithful to God's call. And God was faithful to to the promise he made to Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually lived to be an old man, at least 80 or 90 years old, seeing the release of King Jehoiachin in Babylon around 561 B.C. So, a little bit on Jeremiah's background, but now that we know a little bit more about the man and his ministry, let's look at the message. Look now at Jeremiah 2, 4-13, as we look at God's indictment on Judah. Verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and walked after emptiness, and became empty? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and of pits, through a land of drought and of deep darkness, through a land that no one crossed, and where no man dwelt? I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things, but you came and defiled my land, and my inheritance you made an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that did not profit. Therefore, I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Kittim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely, and see if there's ever been, or see if there's been such a thing as this. Has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. I will just stop right there. Very striking words from the Lord. Let's observe. To whom is this word addressed? It says, all the house of Jacob, all the families of the house of Israel. Now, we know Israel is a northern kingdom, but northern kingdom has been removed at this point. So how should we understand, or who should we understand the audience to be? This is the people who are left in the land, which would be Judah. They are the descendants of Jacob, also the descendants of Israel. They are the people that God is addressing here. What explanation does God demand from Judah in verse 5? Yeah, Greg. Yeah, why did you leave me? Specifically, he asks, Yeah, what did I do? What did I do wrong to you? What injustice did you find in me that caused you to abandon me? Explain. How did I treat you badly? How am I at fault? What does God say that people are not remembering, according to verse 6? They're not bringing back to their minds something. Why don't they bring it back to their minds? That's right. That's right. He says, you don't remember how I delivered you out of Egypt. You don't remember with the mighty hand that I brought you across the wilderness. How I brought you into this good land. 
You're not recalling that. Actually, verse 7 says, in response to God doing those good things, the people of Judah, the people of Israel and Judah, but Judah now, have defiled the land and made their God-given inheritance an abomination before God. Now, God doesn't just condemn the people of Judah in general, but also he specifically condemns another group in verse 8. What other group? The priests. We can actually divide it into a couple different things. The priests, who else? The rulers and the prophets. All the leaders of Judah. He says, all of you are going astray. None of you are remembering me. None of you are thinking about my law. You're all turning aside. Prophets go after Baal. The rulers do evil as well. And then, God points out something appalling based on a comparison between the people of Judah and the people of the other nations. What is it that the nations of Kittim, that's Cyprus, and Kedar, that's Arabia, what do they not even do? They don't change their gods. Yeah, they have a certain set of gods. You know, they're their gods, and they serve those gods. Every nation has its own gods. Every once in a while, uh, the pantheons shift a little bit, but every, every people has their own gods that they serve, and they never change them. They almost never change them. But these gods are not even gods. They're not even real, but people hold to their gods. They're their gods, after all. The other nations don't change gods even though they're not really gods. But what has Judah done? What have Judah and Israel done? They've done what the other nations don't do. They have changed their gods, even though their God is actually God. Their God actually has power. Their God actually is real. God further describes his people's evil in verse 13. He says they are doubly evil. Not only did they reject God, who is the fountain of living waters. He's the only one who can sustain and satisfy them. That was a momentous evil. But he says they have also rejected God in order to hew for themselves broken cisterns. Now what's a cistern again? It's like a well. It's a little bit different than a well. Can anyone explain? It's, yeah, it's basically a storage place for water. It's for collecting rainwater. It's like a well. It's just a big hole in the ground or a big chamber in the ground. It collects rainwater and it stores it there. Now, cisterns are not as good as fountains or springs because they just collect and hold water. They're not sources of water. So he says, you've rejected the living fountain. You've hewn for yourself a cistern, but it's a broken cistern. A broken cistern has some sort of leak so that it doesn't keep the rainwater that it collects. It just exits the cistern in some way. It can't hold any water, God says. He says, that's what you've done. Are you not doubly evil? Let's ask a a couple of interpretation questions. What are the broken cisterns of verse 13? They're other gods, right? That's what he said before. The other nations don't exchange their gods, but you have. You've taken the fountain of living waters and exchanged it for a broken cistern. These other gods, these idols, these things you serve are the broken cisterns that you have made for yourselves. By comparing Israel to the other nations, what does God emphasize about, not Israel, I'm sorry, Judah. By comparing Judah to the other nations, what does God emphasize about Judah?
says the other nations don't even do what you did. So, yeah. They're of the depravity of Judah. The greatness of their evil. Look how evil you are. Even the evil nations don't do what you did. God is really emphasizing the evil of Judah. But it's not just that the people are evil. Look back at the passage. Look at the end of verse 4. The end of verse 8. The end of verse 11. And the end of verse 13. There's a theme that God keeps bringing up. Not only is Judah's rejection of God evil, what else is it? Yeah, Judy. Yeah, it's unprofitable. It's futile. It's just not smart. It's senseless. It's stupid. Why? Why would you do something that was for your profit and turn aside to something that gives you no profit? Israel, I'm sorry, Judah is not only evil, it is senseless. God tells Judah, how evil must you be in order to do something that is not only so wicked and so ungrateful, but also so foolish. You've exchanged that which is profitable for that which is unprofitable. The God who has power for the gods who have no power. The God who has inaugurated a covenant of love with you for gods who do not even exist. This idea of willful evil and folly appears in another passage, and I want us to look at that too. Turn to the next chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 3, verses 6 to 10, where God continues his indictment of Judah. So this is just on the next page in the Pew Bible, 754. Look at verses 6 to 10. Follow along as I read. Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. Okay, some more things we can observe here. When do these words of God come to Jeremiah? Yeah, Greg. Days of Josiah the king. Now remember, Josiah is a righteous king who brings reformation and revival to Judah. God speaks of both Israel and Judah, her sister, here. Who is Israel referring to? This is the northern kingdom. We're not thinking according to the understanding from chapter 2. This is not all the descendants of Israel. This is specifically the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom referring to Judah. Now, God says Israel, the northern kingdom, was a harlot, though God expected Israel to return after she had pursued her harlotry to the utmost. But Israel didn't do that. So what did God do to Israel, according to the passage? Divorced her. I gave her a certificate of divorce, and I sent her away. That's what I did with the northern kingdom. Judah, Israel's sister, saw what happened. But rather than fearing God, what did Judah do? She did what her sister did. 
she committed harlotry also. It says the lightness of her harlotry, that's probably referring to just the casual nature of her harlotry. She committed adultery with various stones and trees. After this, God says, Judah did return to God. But what was the problem? God found a problem. Still, what's the problem? They did not come back with all of their hearts. They came back in deception. They said, oh God, we're returning to you. But God knows their heart's not in it. They're not coming back to him with a whole heart. Let's ask a few more interpretation questions now. The harlotry and adultery mentioned here is not literal, but it's symbolic. What is it a symbol of? Idolatry. This is language common in the prophetic books. Their spiritual adultery is their idolatry. Now God says he gave Israel a certificate of divorce and sent her away. Now God didn't do this literally. There was no piece of paper that he sent to her. But what did God do that is symbolically described as a divorce? Something that Judah witnessed. Exactly. Israel's end as a kingdom and the people being brought into exile. That is being symbolically described as a divorce. And you can see the language fits. I gave her a certificate and sent her away. Just as the people of Israel were sent away from Samaria and the land of Canaan and they went beyond the Euphrates. They went to Assyria. He says, that's what happened to Israel. Judah saw it. Now if you're Judah and you see Israel go into exile because of idolatry, what lesson Seems common sense for you to learn. Don't do what she did. If, yeah, exactly. If God does this to my sister Israel, then he will do it to me if I do it. I better stop going after idols. But Judah doesn't learn that lesson. In fact, it learns the opposite lesson. She, Judah becomes like her sister, even though she saw Israel go into exile. Now, what does this show about Judah? If the lesson was so obvious, but she refused to learn it, what does that show? Obstinate. What were you going to say, Roy? Yeah. No relationship with God. Obstinate, foolish, senseless. In both of these passages, we see that Judah is emphasized as just an evil and senseless people. Now, just uh, so we're clear, when God announces this divorce of the northern kingdom, does that mean that he's completely done with Israel? I think the answer is no, because as we've seen from Hosea and the other prophets who prophesied to Israel, God says, in the last days, I'm going to come back. I'm going to restore you. Israel, not just Judah. Israel, I'm going to restore you too. So this is a temporary divorce. Now God says Judah committed adultery with various stones and trees. What does that mean? Yes, Joe. Right, this is referring to idolatrous worship. Yeah, structures like altars, images, being made out of stones and trees. Yeah, we're continuing the symbolism of adultery equaling idolatry. It says that's what Judah did. And was doing, doing it all over the place. Very casual with her spiritual adultery. Now this word, all of this, comes to Jeremiah during Josiah's reign. 
And if you read in the history books, Josiah's reign sounds like a great time in Judah. It's like everyone's turning back to the Lord. This is great. Well, what's the problem with Josiah's reforms as far as Judah is concerned? It does seem like the people are turning back to God. What's the problem? They're not coming back with all of their hearts. God says, I see those reforms. I see what Josiah is trying to do. I see this presentation of your repentance, but I know the truth. You're not really fully repentant. You're not coming back to me with your whole heart. You have not changed your attitude towards your idols, but you're masking it for a time. Now, will God honor such repentance and renewed worship? No. From the sincere ones who are returning to the Lord, yes, God will honor it, but as a nation that is, as a whole, not sincerely returning to the Lord, he's not going to honor that. Judgment still comes. Judah shows herself in these passages, and certainly others in Jeremiah, to be thoroughly senseless and wicked. Yet how has God acted in the meantime? Faithful, long-suffering, kind. Like even with Israel, he says, she's committing all this harlotry, but she will eventually return to me. She can't keep going after evil and not feel guilty about it and not return to me. Israel kept going. God said, all right, I have to judge her. But he was very patient with Israel, and now he's patient with Judah, even though she's so senseless and so wicked. So already from these two passages, we see God's great righteousness, his righteous dealings with his people, and yet his people's great evil. They are extremely obstinate. God is good and patient, but the people have only heaped up their adulteries with various idols. Judah has not learned any lesson, any good lesson from Israel's exile. Even Judah's repentance under Josiah is shallow and deceptive, God says. Now, with such stubborn and ceaseless evil, even the most patient God must do what? He must bring judgment. You're going to say something, Danny? Okay. Yeah, he must bring judgment. But he gives Judah more time. He tells Judah that there's still something she might do to be spared judgment, to be reconciled to God. And that's what I want to look at next. Let's look at God's appeal to Judah in chapter 4, just the first four verses of chapter 4. What does God call Judah to do? Judah, there's something you can do. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. We have the, the term Israel here, but again, this refers to Judah. If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to me. And if you will put away your detested things from my presence, and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in him, and in him they will glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground. Do not sow among thorns, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart, men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. God calls on Judah to truly repent. You need to truly repent, Judah. And he gives two examples of how their repentance would be demonstrated. What are the two ways given in the first two verses? 
Put away the detestable things. And that's got to refer to the idols and the things associated with them. Get rid of those. Get rid of idolatrous worship. And what's another way you'll demonstrate repentance? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right, Shay. That second example there. When you swear as the Lord lives, because that's a common oath for people in Judah to make, he says, I want you to actually mean it. When you swear, let it be in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Not only in your declarations to me, but in your declarations to one another. Speak honestly. Practice justice. Keep your word. And I'll see your repentance. God pictures this repentance as a plowing of hard, thorn-infested, and fallow ground. And also a circumcision of the heart. Don't just look on the outside. Circumcise the heart. Be sincere. If the people of Judah do this, what will be the result, according to verse 2? Kind of a surprising result. Yeah, the nations will be blessed in him. And that him has got to refer to God. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations if you actually follow God. Because you're going to help the people be blessed in God. But if the people will not repent from the heart, what will be the result? Yeah, God's wrath will go forth unquenchably. It will be an overwhelming amount of wrath. It cannot be stopped. If you will not repent, there is no escape from God's judgment. If you will not repent from the heart. Now, a question, an interpretation question. As we've seen many times in the Old Testament, when God calls on Israel or Judah or nations to repent, he doesn't use the language of belief but of action. Stop doing these things. Start doing these things. Does this mean that the Old Testament teaches salvation through works and not faith? That's right. That's right. Okay, so Bill is articulating some good truth there. Repentance is always by faith. There is no repentance without faith. Salvation has to be consistent from Old Testament to New Testament. Why then is repentance described the way it is in the Old Testament? Why doesn't it mention faith and belief and really focus on the works? Dwayne. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're, you're, just to repeat your comment, Dwayne, in the New Testament, there's a similar emphasis on works. That is, you have to put off the old works, or the old ways, the old evil ways, and put on the new righteous ways. Now, you may say, well, there's a lot more about belief and faith in the New Testament. That is true. But even if you go to the book of James, right? James, who's speaking to a Jewish Christian church, or largely Jewish audience, he really emphasizes the works. Even going so far as to say, faith without works is dead, right? Right? Because your faith is proven by what you do. 
So the Bible's not being inconsistent here when it talks about deeds. It's not saying, all right, in the Old Testament you did works, in the New Testament it's all about belief. No, it's always all about belief. But the emphasis that God chooses to articulate mostly in the Old Testament, we do know that there's also the passages that do talk about belief. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That's in Genesis. But like James, the Old Testament words about repentance emphasize the fruit of repentance. If you really believe, Judah, if you really are returning to God, then show it. Don't just say, oh, as the Lord lives. Speak honestly. Put away the idols. Do justice. Don't talk about repentance if you're not willing to change your actions. It's the same, same thing in the New Testament. If there are no fruits of repentance, if your life doesn't change from an evil, self, self-focused way, to one that loves the Lord and does his will, you haven't repented. What were you going to say, Rob? That's right. Yeah, Habakkuk is another place that talks about faith. The righteous will live by his faith. And that's picked up on in the New Testament. You're right. Thanks for mentioning that, Rob. So let's not get confused when we look at passages like this telling for God to change the actions. Salvation is consistent here. God is just emphasizing the fruit of salvation. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think you're right, Danny. Even in this passage where it talks about the circumcision of the heart, that is a that is pointing to belief. That is pointing to what's on the inside rather than on the outside. It's in direct contrast to the outside. Oh, I can do the work of circumcision. He says, you got to do, or you need to be circumcised on the inside. Your heart needs to change. Your mind needs to change. Yeah, Steve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great great comment, Steve. I'll just briefly try and repeat it. Even the image of breaking up the fallow ground is again pointing to the inward change. If you're going to produce fruit, if you're going to produce righteous behavior, you have to break up that soil. You have to have the changed perspective, the changed heart. And I think a number of you mentioned all this connects to the imagery and the explanations of salvation that are given in the New Testament. It's consistent between the old and the new. All right. So we see what Judah is called to do. They're called to repent. They're called to repent sincerely. But they don't. They don't listen to Jeremiah's words. In fact, they dismiss the prophets outright. They say there's no need to listen to God's prophets proclaiming repentance. Their message is empty. There's no substance to what they say. Well, God has a response to that. I want us to look at that also. And as we transition now to look at God's warning of judgment, Look at Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5, verses 14 and 19. 
right before this passage, in verse 13, there's a declaration from the people, oh, the prophets, they're just windbags. Don't need to listen to what they say. Well, here's what God says in verse 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, this word dismissing the prophets, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it will consume them. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave. All of them are like mighty, or all of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food. They will devour your sons and your daughters. They will devour your flocks and your herds. They will devour your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a complete destruction. I will not make you a complete destruction. It shall come about when they say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? And you shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you will serve strangers in the land that is not yours. Let's observe. In contrast to the dismissal of God's word as mere wind by the people of Judah, God tells Jeremiah that he's going to make Jeremiah's words fire that will consume the people. God promises to bring an ancient and enduring nation full of mighty deadly men and warriors against Judah. And what will this nation destroy from Judah? God mentions a number of things. He's going to destroy their crops. Yep, their vines, their fields, they're going to be destroyed. What else? Their sons and daughters are going to be destroyed. They're going to lose their children. What else? Right, the flocks and herds, your animals are going to be destroyed, and your fortified cities. Those things that you're trusting in. Wow, we've got a great, strong, fortified city. We're safe here. No, all going to be destroyed, God says. Your crops, your animals, your children, your fortified cities are all going to be destroyed by this nation I'm bringing against you. And when this judgment comes, what astonishing question will the people of Judah ask? Why has God done this to to us? I can't understand. Why is this happening? Well, Jeremiah's response is a description of God's fitting, even poetic justice. Judah, you served foreign gods. Therefore, here's what God, will, here's what God is doing. God is removing you to a foreign land. And there you'll be ruled by foreign people who speak a language that is foreign to you. It's fitting because you've chosen foreign gods. Judah will face this fierce destruction. And yet when it comes to pass, what does God still promise? He says, I won't make a complete destruction of you. I won't destroy you utterly. I'll still have mercy even in my judgment. And of course we know that's in remembrance of covenant. So we see here that God is very straightforward with Judah. Because you refuse to listen to my prophets, total destruction is coming upon you. Or, aside from that one little qualification of mercy, utter devastation is coming upon you. But some of them may have said, surely God will not allow Jerusalem to be destroyed. Surely God will not allow his temple to be defiled. Will he? After all, God 
specifically chose to set his name in Jerusalem and in the temple. God has a response to that sentiment as well. Turn to Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, and we're looking at verses 1 to 15. Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, that you may do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place which I gave you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. Let's observe this section. Where does God send Jeremiah to deliver this word? The gate of the temple. Go to the temple. What deception does God warn the people against? Yeah, don't trust in the temple. Don't think that because you have the temple, you're safe. And you notice the the phrasing that God imitates from them, how they repeat the temple of the Lord, as if just that fact of the temple's existence will be their bulwark. God says that the fact that they have the temple will not keep them in the land. But what will keep them in the land? Repentance. If you actually turn back and do righteousness, then I'll let you stay in the land. The temple's not going to keep you in the land, but repentance will. And notice the works of repentance detailed here. Practice justice. Don't oppress the alien, the poor, the widow. Don't shed innocent blood. Don't worship other gods. God says, if you obey these things, then I'll let you dwell in the land. What inconsistency does God point out that further proves that their temple and their supposed devotion to God will not deliver them? What are they doing? All the while, they worship in the temple. Yeah, they're doing evil. They do evil, and then they come and worship in the temple. And God even asks, has the temple become a den of robbers to you? A robber's den. And pastor described this in a recent sermon. 
has it become a place for you thieves to gather in safety? You do all your evil and then head right back to your den, which is my temple, my holy temple. God says, I see this. I see this hypocrisy. I warn you, you need to learn the lesson of Shiloh. Now, what's significant about Shiloh, you may ask? Well, God brings to mind two facts. That's where God's name dwelt at first. And that place experienced God's judgment. Now, what is God referring to here? Let's, uh, let's see if we can recall. Shiloh was the place where the ark and their tabernacle first resided when the people of Israel came into the promised land. All through the judges' period, God's name was established at Shiloh. That's where his tabernacle, that's where his ark was. When people wanted to find out the will of the Lord or they wanted to get a word from the Lord, they went to Shiloh because that's where the ark and the tabernacle were. But what happened that, God, that caused God's name to be removed from Shiloh? In the very beginning of 1 Samuel, Israel has become very wicked. The people, there are two sons of Eli that are in the tabernacle who are using it as a place of wickedness. And then Israel's at war and they're defeated. What does Israel decide to do to help them gain victory? That's right. They thought, we'll take the ark with us to the battlefield. Surely we can't lose if we've got the ark. God won't allow us to be defeated if we take God with us, if we have God's dwelling place. Well, what happened? They got defeated, and what happened to the ark? It was captured. In fact, even when the ark was returned, it never went back to Shiloh. Now, we don't hear anything further in the Old Testament about what else happened to Shiloh, whether the place was destroyed or devastated, whether the tabernacle itself was captured or destroyed. It's significant that the ark never returns to Shiloh. So all of that is in mind when God says, remember Shiloh, remember what happened there. God ended his special relationship with that place after what Israel did. And because of Judah's evil and Judah's refusal to heed God's continuous calls back in our passage here in Jeremiah, what does God promise in verses 14 to 15? Two things. What will he do? Um, back in Jeremiah 7, verses 14 to 15. What will God do? I'm going to cast you out like I cast out Ephraim. That's right. I'm going to get you out of this place. But what else is God going to do? going to happen to his house. I'm going to devastate it. Whatever I did to Shiloh, I'm going to do to my house now. I'm going to remove my name from it. Now, one quick interpretation question. Perhaps this is obvious by now. But how are the people in Jerusalem acting just like Israel at Shiloh? I mean, it's almost the exact same situation. Yeah, Judy. 
They're, repeating, they're treating superstitiously the objects that represent God or God's dwelling place, and they think because they have that object, they'll have victory. They'll be safe militarily. But God makes clear, only repentance can secure you from God's judgment. If you're thinking the same way that Shiloh, the people of Shiloh were, pay attention to what happened to Shiloh. What happened at Shiloh? You took the ark in the battle and it was captured. I'm not above allowing my, the place of my dwelling to become captured, especially when my people do such wickedness. Don't think that because you have the temple or because you have the ark, you're safe. The only thing that can make you safe is repentance. So we've seen in these first seven chapters of Jeremiah, God's warning to Judah, or we've seen the God's warning to Judah, and this, this is the same warning, same kind of warning that was given by Amos and Hosea to Israel, and Jeremiah is giving it to Judah. Yes, Shay. Okay, so let me see if I can repackage what you were saying real quickly. So you're referring to that passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 44, where he's talking about the senselessness of their idol worship. You're using some of the wood for the fire and for food, and then you take the rest of the wood and you, you make an, an image of a god for yourself. What's interesting is you're talking about how the, these objects, they, they can either have no meaning or they can be detestable to God. And it goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's about the heart. Like, wood's nothing, right? And even in the New Testament, God says an idol is nothing. You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. And there's, no, there's nobody there. There's nobody home. Nothing happens to the, to the food whenever it's presented to an idol. But on the other hand, he says, beware of idolatry. Don't go near the service for idols in the temple because you could be involved in blasphemy. You can be involved in detestable worship. And we see these truths both uh, in, in the passage you just mentioned and in the one that we just looked at where they are taking the objects, even the objects related to God, and they're using them in a detestable way. And God said, there's no significance in the object itself. 
What is significant is about what you're doing, even with my holy objects. Certainly the unholy objects, the idols, they are always, or they are always used in a detestable way. Uh, we're running a little bit short on time, so hang on to those comments at the end. But certainly we know that God, God cares about the heart, God, um, and God doesn't want us to treat even the things that, that he allows for his own worship superstitiously. And I think there's application for today, too. Anyways, one last thing I want us to look at. We've seen how God makes clear Israel, Judah's wickedness, Judah's great wickedness. He calls on Judah to repent and truly do righteousness. And God warns of the great judgment that will come if they don't turn back. But God already told Jeremiah they're not going to listen. So the judgment was coming. The judgment did come. But even in this judgment, even in the proclamation of this judgment, just like God told Israel, I'm not done with you. God tells Judah the same thing. He says, I will yet restore you. In fact, there's one passage that I'd like us to look at because it's momentous, like some of the other passages we've seen from the other prophets. Turn to Jeremiah 31. And there are a lot of statements here in Jeremiah about restoration, some involving the Messiah, specifically and directly, but this one is, is one I want us to look at before we close. Jeremiah 31, and I want us to read verses 27 to 34. God tells Judah, I will restore you. Just like I promised Israel to restore her, I will restore you as well. But let's hear what God says specifically about this. Verse 27, Jeremiah 31, verse 27. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. As I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Let's make a few more observations. In verses 27 to 30, the beginning part of this, what does God promise will be different for Israel and Judah in the future? What's going to be sown back in the land? Both. Yeah, Judy. I think that's the best way to understand it. People and animals, the seed of man and the seed of beast. I want to bring them back into the land. It's going to be utterly devastated. Both the, remember, we already saw it. animals are going to be destroyed. I'm going to bring back the people. I'm going to bring back the animals. I'm going to put them back into the land. And he says no one's going to suffer consequences for their forefather's sin. That's the idea of this proverb, the sour grapes. Because of what my fathers did, I've got to suffer for it. He says, that's not the way it's going to be. People are only going to experience the consequences for their own sin, not for those who came before them. And then, 
Verse 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. With whom does God promise to make it? With Israel. Specifically, Israel and Judah, it says. This covenant, according to verse 32, will be different from what other covenant? Well, I think you're on the right track. Yeah, what covenant are we talking about? Mosaic covenant. Probably better understood, Israel's covenant. The special covenant God made with Israel on Mount Sinai. So this is going to be different from that one. And God highlights a couple aspects of this coming covenant that are unique. It says, in this coming, this new covenant, God's law will be on the hearts of his people. God himself will write it there. God will be Israel's God. And they will be his people. And third, all Israel and Judah will know God. No one will even be, need to be taught about God because they'll all know him. And God gives the reason making all this possible denoted by the word for in verse 34. He says, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, a few interpretation questions. If we could paraphrase verses 31 to 34, what is God promising to do for Israel and Judah? Yeah, circumcision of the heart. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to change you. I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to write my law there, and I'm going to cause your sins to be forgiven. We've heard this promise before, haven't we? Deuteronomy 30, God promised to circumcise the hearts of Israel and Israel's descendants. Hosea 2 and 3, God promised to betroth Israel to himself in righteousness and faithfulness, and that Israel would one day acknowledge, you are my God. Micah 7, God promised to cast away all of Judah's sin and fulfill his covenant love to Abraham and Jacob. And Isaiah 53, God declared that his suffering servant will be presented as a guilt offering and be crushed for his people, for their transgressions. Who is the bringer of this new covenant? It's Jesus Christ. He said as much. At the Last Supper, Jesus passed around the cup and said, this is Luke 12, 22, 20, the cup, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus proclaimed, I am the one who brings the new covenant to Israel and to Judah. I am the means by my own sacrificial death on the cross. I will pour out my blood that you might enter into this new covenant. The apostles say the same thing. The writer of Hebrews proclaims that Jesus is the mediator of God's new covenant, a covenant far superior to the old covenant of Moses. And Paul proclaims that this new covenant is to be not of the letter of the law that kills, but of the spirit that gives life. Got to hang on to that. We're, we're running short on time. Indeed, through salvation by faith in Jesus, God does circumcise the heart, and he writes his law upon it. So that the person whom God saves desires to learn and to do the whole will of God. And if you believe in Jesus this morning, you have entered into the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. But you may ask, but wait, didn't Jeremiah promise this to Israel and Judah? Why do I receive it when clearly the Jews today have not? Ah, this is the mystery that Paul talks about in the New Testament. A truth previously veiled but now fully revealed. And that is that 
God has temporarily hardened the Jews and thereby expanded the scope of salvation, bringing it to all men, bringing it to the Gentiles, so that every tribe, tongue, and nation may believe in Jesus and be saved. But one day, he will return to Israel and to Judah, and he will cause, or he will fulfill this promise. He will cause all Israel to be saved, not just a remnant, which is what we see today, but all Israel. A generation to come, all Israel will be saved. They will have their hearts circumcised, like we do today. All Israel and Judah will have their hearts circumcised, and they will recognize their Messiah, and he will set up his kingdom on earth. I wish we could talk more about that, but we only have like a minute left. So, What we've seen today, and God's warning to Judah through Jeremiah, or we have seen God's warning to Judah through Jeremiah, yet even in this warning, there is God's assurance that he would not totally cast off Judah or even Israel. He promised that a new and glorious covenant was coming to them one day, a covenant that you and I have mercifully become part of because of Jesus. Now, the passages we've looked at today are pretty varied, but we can draw a number of applications. And here are a few for you to think about as we close today. Are you in danger of God's judgment due to your own idolatry? and heart wickedness? Well, you may not serve statues. Do you have what Ezekiel describes? Idols of the heart. Do you love something more than God that causes you to disobey God? And you are an idolater, and you are under God's judgment. Have you realized the senselessness of serving idols instead of God? Have you not yet seen that they have no ability to save or satisfy you, though they may please your flesh a little? Are you still deceived by the promises of false gods, and the lusts of your flesh? Have you repented before God of your idols and sins, but your repentance is nevertheless shallow and deceptive? Do you keep on doing what you did before? Saying, God, I'm really sorry, I won't do it again. I'm going to go away from this habit, but then you just keep on doing it. If so, you're just like Judah. You're under the danger of God's judgment. Do you have something like the ark or the temple of God in your life that you hide behind for security? Oh, God surely won't judge me because I've got this. Maybe it's good church attendance, Christian family, outwardly righteous behavior, a position in the church, a godly spouse, religious rituals, prayers, a pastor, a priest. Surely God wouldn't do it to me. Well, none of these things will protect you. God must punish wickedness, especially wickedness done with the pretense of holiness. He's not above judging his temple. He's not above judging you who claim to be a Christian and maybe even go to church. Finally, do you love Jesus Christ for making you, if you believe in him, and truly repented, part of the new covenant? Do you love him for willingly presenting himself to be crushed for your iniquity? Do you love him for electing you before the foundation of the world? Do you love him for circumcising your heart and giving you a place in his coming kingdom? If you do, do you keep his commandments? Because Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. As we've said today, these works don't save you, but they show whether your salvation is real. That's all for this week. We know that the generation of Jeremiah's day does not heed the warning, so God's judgment comes. And that's our topic for next week. God judges Judah. Let's pray.